Heavenly Father, this is your word. This is your world. Lord, you are the king and ruler of all things. We, at best, are your servants. And Lord, we pray that your word would speak to us as your word this morning. That we would delight to hear from you. That you would keep me from saying things that are not in accordance with your word. But that you would grant us the humility to receive what is your word as your word and to respond with humble, faithful obedience. Because to you alone belongs all honour, worthy and praise. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I don't like about phones and technology is they, they have this feature where they show you memories from things that have gone by. And they show you things, and recently I've been getting a lot of pictures from a car that I had for a very short period of time. It was a high-performance car. It was a car that I had won. I loved driving that car. I love being part of some Facebook groups online with people with similar vehicles, going for drives with other people with similar vehicles. But as I was watching some of those Facebook groups, there was one thing that was kind of like, seemed to be everybody's pet peeve. And that was people who had lesser model cars that weren't actually performance cars, but had taken the original badges off and put on other badges to give the impression that they had a vehicle that was a much better model than what they actually have. For example, I currently drive, this is going to revoke my Australian citizenship, a 2018 ZB Commodore, the non-Australian made one, the front-wheel drive one, the the four-cylinder one. Now, imagine I, I was to take all the badges off and I try and put on a body kit, the right wheels and all the badges to try and give the impression that I have a HSV Club Sport R8 LSA, which is a rear-wheel drive, 6.2-litre supercharged V8. Now, apart from the fact that they stopped making HSVs in 2017, therefore my body doesn't even, even resemble the time when they made those cars, but when I pull up to the lights... Not only if the car next to me is foolish enough to think that I actually have got a club sport, they're going to think this is the quietest club sport I've ever seen in my life. But then when that light turns green, if both were to put their foot down, pretty soon you're going to realise that ain't a club sport. That is not a 6.2 litre supercharged V8. You can claim whatever you like about your car, And if that claim is genuine, it will have certain outputs. It will produce certain things. And when put to the test, you'll find out whether the external claim actually has any substance at all. In the passage that we've just had read, James speaks about what genuine saving faith produces. In the past, there have been some people including quite famously Martin Luther, 
who thought that what James says contradicts or stands in opposition to what Paul teaches about how we are saved before God. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a spoiler alert. Everything that James says actually sits alongside very nicely with everything that Jesus talked about the way of salvation and Paul speaks about how we are saved by grace through faith alone. So we'll address the misconception that they're at odds or that James is somehow adding works as a condition for salvation. And as we work our way through, we're going to see an opening question in verse 14 that is effectively, what kind of faith will save? Can this that he gives in an illustration, does that type of faith save? Then he gives two different examples, both for and against. Two examples of of a type of claim of faith that does not express saving faith and then two examples of those that do. And we're going to look at what true saving faith produces. So beginning with that opening question, now James is writing likely to address real issues that are confronting the people to whom he's writing to. So as he spoke to them about trials, they're probably experiencing all sorts of different trials. As he spoke to them about showing favouritism towards different people that Esther looked at last week, it's because it was a very real issue um, on the ground for them. So it appears, as we're reading through this, these verses that one of the issues that we're experiencing is that they had a difference of opinion about the relationship between faith and works. And so James just kind of throws out the question to bring it into discussion. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He's kind of entering into the debate of can somebody claim to have faith and have no works at all, can that be a legitimate claim to faith? Or to word it another way, can that type of faith, a faith that says things but has no external evidence, can that type of faith be a saving faith? Which is worth noting when we talked about how there's some people who think there's a big conflict between what James says and what Paul says. James is asking the question about the type of faith that saves somebody. So James is first and foremost saying that we are saved by faith alone. He recognised we're saved by faith, therefore he's clarifying what this faith is and what it looks like. That's the question the whole passage addresses. If we are genuinely saved by faith alone, then it's important to know what is this faith by which we are saved. How can we know that we have that type of faith that is the type of faith that enters into salvation? Now James begins with two examples of a type of faith that does not save in verses 15 to 19. And in both the cases For and against, the two examples cited are kind of like this extreme 
polar ends of the spectrum as a way of communicating this is how it is for everyone, regardless of your background, regardless of where you're at. And these two opening examples, first he's got one that's quite familiar to us, a well-meaning but kind of uncommitted-to-act kind of person. And then on the completely far end of the spectrum, a demon who can say right things, but who still shudders in fear. But the one we're probably more acquainted with is a well-meaning but passive person. What James describes, they're pretty real situations. They're things that we're familiar with, we're things that we would have experienced ourselves. But also he's addressing something specific that was a tangible, real problem for James's readers to who he's writing to. They were, by nature, they were Jewish Christians who after the persecution had scattered. And it's a normal, natural result that if you have to leave everything quickly, that's going to have a financial impact upon you. It may mean you've left some livestock behind, your normal connections, your house, your home, so it is likely that people will be under financial strain in those circumstances. So James puts out a hypothetical, but very likely to be a real situation as well. He says, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? Now he says, if a brother or sister... So he's particularly talking about how they relate to their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, their fellow Christians. And in particular, the example, he talks about genuine, basic life necessities. What if you have a fellow brother or sister in Christ who doesn't have sufficient clothing for the circumstances or they don't have enough to get by for daily food provisions. And what's implied by that later part of verse 16 where he says, without giving them things needed for the body, he's implying that he's addressing a people who do have the resources to do something about it. But what, in this hypothetical example that person actually provides are words, well wishes. Kind of what we hear so frequently, that common thought of when something goes wrong or people are going through hardships, people use this phrase which they have probably have no idea what it means and it probably has no practical implications. Our thoughts and prayers are with you. But in particular, in this example, it says, go in peace be warmed and be filled. It's a nice sentiment. It kind of comes across that person wants the best outcome for that person. But at the same time, they are someone who has the ability to help that person in need with basic life necessities. But rather than being willing to give up any of theirs to help them out, 
They just issue a generic, no expenses speed. Hope it all works out well for you, brother. Now, this passage can be uncomfortable for us in many ways. Because if we're honest, we have probably found ourselves in situations where a fellow Christian has been in serious need and our natural default answer has been to say, I will pray for you. Or, I hope that goes well for you. I hope, hope that, that what you need comes to pass. It's kind of like we've recognised, yeah, you're right. That is a deep and genuine need. I really hope that somebody else can provide for that need. While all along, the reason why you might have encountered that person and the reason why you might be having that discussion is because you were the person that God had planned to provide for them, to be a blessing to them. And not only that, sometimes the way we respond might differ, depends on who's, who is in that situation. You know, we're really, really quick to say, if that person was a good friend of mine, yes, I would do that in a heartbeat. That person's in my community group, or if that person has had a history of doing good things for me, but what did the wording say that James provided? It says, if a brother or sister... No other restrictions, just A, generally, if another Christian was in these circumstances. We saw last week, as Ezra went through the first 13 verses, we are not to show favouritism based on anything. The equation he kept putting forward throughout his sermon last week was faith plus favouritism equals foolishness. Whereas, in fact, our unqualified love for one another is something that we should be known for. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, this is a well-known sign that will testify to the world that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Not love for a certain sphere of people within the one another, but for one another, for the body, for the all. You don't need to be Christian to love people who, who, who you're close to. Anyone will do that. But when people come into an environment where Christian fellowship genuinely exists, they should see a love that just doesn't make sense. They should see a love for one another that can say that only a supernatural act of God could cause a people to have a love for one another the way in which they do. And it's not surprising why if you ever look at Eastgate's values, the very first one is love that is genuine and tangible. So the first example of something that's not saving faith 
is to have nice words, but unwilling to give up anything for another person. We are to love as Jesus loved us. And he gave up his everything for us while we were hostile to him. The second is doctrine without devotion. The example cited being a demon. So that's a bit of a contrast. First you've got a, a li- likeable person, a relatable person who's very pleasant in the things that they say but they're a bit passive, they don't actually do anything. Now the complete opposite end of the spectrum, you've got a demon. You believe that God is one, good on you. That's me just checking, making the Aussie version of it. Even the demons believe this and shudder. Have you ever noticed, not only when we went through Mark, but whenever you read through any of the Gospels, how articulate demons are in describing who Jesus is and his mission? Quite often they seem to know better identifying who Jesus is and what he came to do even more so than the disciples. But knowing stuff, knowing right doctrine does not equal saving faith. I don't think anyone reads through the Gospels and thinks, look at that wonderful profession by a demon. He must be a follower of Jesus Christ. No, it says a demon can say a such a statement as this, that the God is one, but he shudders in fear. Now, if you remember, the recipients to whom James is writing are dispersed Jewish Christians who would have had a long heritage of growing up repeating the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4 when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. Even a demon could quote that with full gusto and agree with it. But shudder with fear. Having a right doctrine is not a faith that casts out fear and brings us into a right relationship with God. But even immediately after Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 where he says, Hear, O Lord, the Lord your God is one, it then says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You can say all the right things about God without having an all-in-love for God. Genuine saving faith is doctrine and devotion. As Paul instructed Timothy, he said, watch your life and doctrine closely. He didn't say just one of them. He said, what you believe and how you live should go parallel side and side. So saving faith is neither being passive towards the needs of others or just knowing stuff without a wholehearted devotion. But James does provide... Two examples of what saving faith should look like. And once again, we've got a massive spectrum to kind of cover all bases. First, you've got a well-known Jewish patriarch, Abraham, a well-respected Jew. And on the other hand, you've got Rahab, a 
Gentile, a woman, a prostitute. But firstly, Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jews. James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And certainly that last phrase is probably the one that Martin Luther was uncomfortable with. But the thing that's a little bit confusing when you read that is that James speaks about how Abraham was justified by his works when he offered up Isaac on the altar. Whereas this takes place in Genesis chapter 22. Quite some time before then, Abraham had been promised that he would have a son. But it was 25 years between that promise until he had that son Isaac. It seemed like it was such a long period of time that even Abraham was starting to question things. And so he took his slave Hagar to have a baby with her, which was Ishmael. So he didn't really follow in obedience there. Then eventually he does have Isaac with Sarah. He's finally got this promised child. And God says, I want you to offer him as a whole offering. So what does Abraham do in response? So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled up his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Imagine that. You'd waited 25 years for your one and only son, or for your first son, and you told, go take him to be a burnt offering. And without question, he just loads up all the stuff and off he goes. No arguing with God, no protesting, no questioning. If in the early examples we looked at someone who was unwilling to give up anything, Abraham's pretty much the opposite there. It says, On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. So Abraham goes, he does everything, he takes his son with him, knowing that this obedience to God is going to be costly. He says, we are going up to worship. He sees obeying and walking what God calls him to do is an act of worship regardless of what it costs. Incidentally, that is the first use of the word worship in the Bible, um, which is important to think about how a word first gets used and how it understands and creates a setting for our concept of what worship is. But not only does he talk about it as being an expression of worship, Abraham is certain that God would provide because he's like, yeah, me and Isaac, we're coming back. He has no idea how and why that's going to happen. And it's not until Abraham has a knife at Isaac's throat that God provided. I could not imagine being unquestioning taking one of my kids up to an altar to sacrifice 
And even if I could get myself to that point to pull out a knife and actually be ready to go ahead with it. Yet he did. That is a faith that is willing to give up everything. But it seems strange that James would quote, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Because everything he's describing is Genesis chapter 22, that quote was Genesis chapter 15. Quite some time beforehand. Why? Is it like Abraham somehow needed to be reinstalled? Of course not. God doesn't change his mind about any of his promises. But I think he knows something about our heart and our doubts. Like we, we would look at Abraham and think, yeah, he was going so well, but what about that whole Hagar thing? Is he somehow scrubbed out? Is he out of the book now? I think it serves as a helpful reminder to all of us. None of God's followers have ever got it right all of the time. I'd be shattered if any Christian was to hear this message and can think about times when they should have done something that they didn't and then automatically assume, because I failed on this time and in this time, I must not have a saving faith because I'm not saying a saving faith will always get it right. But there should be and necessarily should be a change. Saving faith Trust God at his word, knowing that his character is good, everything he calls us to do is good. And we'll never count the cost as being too much. The second is about faith, not family. Think about Rahab the prostitute. She didn't have the same sort of Jewish upbringing, so to speak. She was a Gentile would have been considered unclean and outcast because of her profession. She was a woman. She has nothing by way of credentials that would earn a favour with God. Yet the Israelite spies, they come and they stay in her house. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 2. The king of Jericho becomes aware of this, sends message to Rahab saying to hand them over. Yet somehow she knows that the Lord has given that land into his hand. That he will save, he will protect her. She's willing to trust a God that she up until that point in time really doesn't know at great cost. If she's got this wrong, this could cost her life to betray her king. But as the author of Hebrews says, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So whether you're a well-known Jewish patriarch or a Gentile prostitute, if you place your trust in God and you are willing to give anything to serve him. He is a gracious and good God who offers salvation to all who come to him in faith. So what then of 
faith and works. What we've seen, James agrees with Paul and Jesus. We are saved by faith. That's why I asked the question at the beginning, what type of faith is the faith that saves? James, along with all of the, the biblical authors, proclaim without doubt no single person can be or will be made right with God because of their works. However, in agreement with Paul, he would say, saving faith produces works or stands with works. When we think, look at one of Paul's most famous statements about how we are saved by grace through faith, often people forget to keep reading through to verse 10, where Paul says, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. So it's very clear. We are saved by grace. It is not God rewarding us for something we do. It is something we receive by faith. It is the gift of God, not our own doing. That's how we enter into salvation. Then verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So our works don't make us saved, but as a saved people, as a new creation... God has created good works for us to walk in them. Or as the old expression goes, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves never stands alone. There is no such thing as a faith that does not express itself in outward actions. Genuine saving faith shows itself to be true by its natural outworkings. What James speaks of in this passage agrees with what Jesus said. He said, by their fruit you will know them. Or in John chapter 15, he that abides in me, he is the one who produces much fruit. Or Paul, when he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit or of what we've just seen in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, that we are created for good work. So James puts it like this. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What's being discussed here is not a debate of whether we're saved by faith or works. It's not even being discussed whether or not it's a case of faith plus works. What James is speaking about is a faith that has works or a faith that produces works or a, pra- or a faith with works. Saving faith is not just a claim that wishes goodwill to people that is passive and unwilling to give up anything. Nor is saving faith about having right doctrine but having no wholehearted love for God. Saving faith comes from recognising that all of our work is filthy rags. It is impossible by man in the flesh 
to do anything that pleases God. We come to him with repentance, asking him to forgive us, thanking him that Jesus died the death that we deserved in our place, that he rose again in victory. And by faith, we are forgiven. We are a new creation. A new creation that's no longer resisting God, but gladly yielding to him. Willing to serve him regardless of the cost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. But as we come to him, as we've been transformed by him to be a new creation in Christ, created by Jesus for good works, that he prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is easy to believe things about you. It is easy to say nice things to people. But we confess sometimes we are far better wordsmiths than we are disciples. Forgive us of times when we have failed to act, especially towards another brother or sister who has a genuine need that we are capable of helping with. But also give us the grace of times when we were not in a position to help, whether it's because we had other priorities to our own family, we just didn't have the time because of that, that we've not beat ourselves up, that we haven't been able to act on every opportunity that's been presented before us. Lord, help us be a people who want to love you with our whole heart. That we would love the Lord our God, we would love our neighbour as ourselves. That we would describe even the most costly act of obedience to be an act of worship. To be joyfully submitted to because of who you are. Help us to be a people who have not only a faith that is robust in content, but is robust in action. Robust in action out of a transformed heart. Not just because we feel like we convicted them and therefore we better do something. May it get the natural disposition of our heart to love you and to love others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.